Well, good morning, and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is September 19th, 2013. This is broadcast number 44. You know, I, I think I'm living in the past for some reason. As I wrote these notes down for today's broadcast, I wrote down July 19th, and then what makes matters worse is I wrote 2012. So I'm not quite sure what's going on with my thinking. And hopefully, and thankfully, I don't have to do a lot of that on this broadcast. Today is Faith and Practice segment number three. Of course, we have Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of the seminary in studio, as it were, to go through your questions. This is your broadcast. This is the once-a-month feature that we do to address various theological questions, practical questions that you may have in your mind or came across in reading or whatever the case may be. This is your opportunity to hear from a man who has researched and studied much of these items and, of course, teaches as well here at Greenville Seminary. But more on that in just a minute. Let me quickly remind everybody about the mobile app. We have now crossed 1,000 downloads of the app, so that means 1,000 of you are enjoying free resources of the seminary, not to mention the podcast, but also our chapel services, our spring theology conferences, and other types of material. So continue to use that. Uh, tell your friends, and if you don't have it, then I only have one question. Why not? It's free. Free is good. My daddy used to tell me there's no such thing as a free lunch, but there is such a thing as a free app. So go to our website, uh, confessingourhope.com, and you can find out information about that. As well as uh, the mobile app, we also have resources on our on our seminary webpage, gpts.edu. Interested in seminary? More information about the seminary? How you can help support the seminary? That is the website you want to go to, simply gpts.edu. And if that website does not address any question you have, you can write us at info at gpts.edu, and somebody will respond very quickly. As I indicated, we have Dr. Piper in studio today. We're going to be talking to him on faith and practice segment number three. Lots of good questions that have been sent in, and so we're going to just jump right in. Dr. Piper, it's great to have you, as uh, as always, uh, in here to talk about these things. This is my chance to be a student and listen. I get the easy job. I get to read the question. And so, um, so we are going to just jump right into the first question, which comes from a gentleman in right here in the great state of South Carolina, uh, John writes in and he asks this question. How should Christians, and especially Reformed Christians, parents, that is, respond to the recent decision by the Boy Scouts of America to allow openly gay boys to join the Boy Scouts of America? Pastor Rick Phillips, who is the pastor at Second Pres here in Greenville, at the Reformation 21 blog advised Christian parents to wait until the end of the year to leave the Boy Scouts. He also seemed to suggest that parents with young boys almost ready to obtain the rank of Eagle might consider staying on until their sons obtain that rank. What would Jesus do, or more appropriately, what principles can Christian parents glean from the Holy Word of God regarding this matter? Thank you, Bill. John, for the question. It's great to be back with faith and practice. This is one of those very difficult questions in our culture. And in my opinion, there's not just a black and white answer to this. A lot depends on the scout group, its sponsors and organizations, who's in charge, what kind of Christian influence is there. When I was 
converted in 1960. I was in Scouts, and after another one more meeting, I left Scouts because of all the sinful influences. So my scouting experience 40, 50 years ago was not good. Whereas I have a number of friends, I know churches, that sponsor scout programs, and they're very good. So I really think it's a matter of Christian liberty. I'll give you a historical example. In the Great Ejection in 1660, the great majority of the Puritans left the Church of England, but a few didn't. In conscience, uh, they thought they could and should stay. And we need to respect people's conscience. We get into issues, areas of where do we draw the line in the sand if we don't have a clear biblical commandment. Now, we have commands like uh, come out from them and be separate and things like that. But that's why it depends on the local organization. The same thing with the Eagle Scout rank. These men have worked hard to get there. If they're in a safe uh, scouting environment, finish that, and then they're probably in a better position anyway to take um, uh, a stand uh, against scouts in the future because they went all the way and, and learned it. We can look at Daniel. He didn't co- cooperate with sin, but he didn't bail out uh, of, of the government because it was pagan. So some parents will feel compelled in conscience to leave immediately, and those, some won't. And I think the important thing is not to judge each other, but to pray for each other, and above all, to pray for our nation. It's one more example of the terrible decline that we're in, and we plead with God to give us revival. Thank you, Dr. Piper. That was a good answer to a difficult question, as has been indicated. I have a friend who is an Eagle. Um, he's the head of an Eagle, or not Eagle, Boy Scouts of America troop, I guess is what they call it. And he had to wrestle through this uh, issue as well. And they've come to some interesting conclusions, which we're not going to get into on this broadcast. But there are options as well. And so I think the as- aspect of Christian liberty does come into play here. And is, of course, uh, something that has to be bathed in prayer without question. And if your conscience forces you to do what you got to do, then you need to follow that as well. Now, our next question comes in. Now, I'm going to, this is a little bit convoluted for me, anyway, as the one asking the question, but so just bear with me. And, and as I'm figuring out how I'm doing this, just give everybody a little bit of an update as far as how this program works. You go to our website, you submit your question. If we do read your question on the air, you will get a book of a massive list of books that have been given to the program to use for this. And you will get it postpaid, sent to you, no strings attached. All we, all we have to do is read your question. So it's a pretty easy way to get a free book is the point. But anyway, the next question comes in from two different individuals. And so as I'm looking through this, trying to figure out how I'm going to do this, the first half of the question comes from Josh, and he is writing in from Texas. And his question is this. He says, Dr. Piper, thank you for your labors in Christ's kingdom. It seems regrettably in many cases that full subscription to the Westminster Standards by potential officers is becoming more and more prevalent. When a minister takes an exception to the confession, in what capacity are they permitted to let their non-confessional position be known to others? The ability to take exceptions seems to be counterproductive in our churches. I'm not sure exactly what kind of exceptions the OPC allows, but maybe you could elaborate a bit on my question here. Now, hold that question. Why don't we wait and do that one, then we'll just go to the next question. They are related, but we'll do it this way. Okay, great. That might be easier. Josh, thank you for your question. I believe that you uh, are asking, uh, are saying that regrettably, 
full subscription is becoming uh, less and less prevalent. For that's how the, the context reads. And you're right. Now, I can't speak about the OPC. I'm, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church has a different approach to exceptions uh, than uh, we do. Uh, our book of order lays it out to some degree. Let's get some terms defined for our broader listening audience. Uh, office bearers, which would mean pastors, ruling elders, and deacons in Presbyterian churches, we'll say the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church in America, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, etc., uh, have to hold to the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Large and Short Catechisms. Historically, holding those doctrines meant that a man subscribed to all of the doctrines in the standards. Scruples could be allowed. So we need to first understand what a scruple is. Let's give this example. The catechism in doing the Lord's Prayer deals with the doxology. A lot of text, and you'll find this in your ESV, your New American Standard Bible, etc., NIV, a lot of texts don't have that last phrase in that particular prayer. It's a biblical phrase. It's actually almost um, verbatim from other places in Scripture. Uh, but because of that, when uh, very serious men taking their vows uh, to hold to the doctrine of the confession of faith, will then scruple that I do not think that that phrase is in the Lord's Prayer. That's not an exception. Uh, they're holding to all the doctrine with respect to prayer. They hold to the truth of the phrase. I just don't think it is found there. An exception is when a man says, uh, I don't accept this doctrine. So the six-day creation, uh, the Sabbath, the regular principle of worship, some issues will come to the next question. Uh, those are serious doctrinal uh, exceptions. Now, in the PCA, they are now allowed if the Presbytery uh, agrees uh, that a person may take them. Uh, that is regrettable. So, to the point of your question, and when a minister takes an exception to the confession, in what capacity is he permitted to let his non-confessional position be known to others? The press chair that I'm in will not allow a man to teach contrary to the confession. And I'm comfortable with that position. Other press chairs don't do that. Now, if a man's asked his opinion, he could say, my, my denomination believes differently here. I think that at this point the Bible teaches. So in a private conversation, I think he's free to express himself. But in his public ministry, I think he should not teach or write contrary to the confession in a public manner. Now, the confession is not infallible, and that means then that uh, ministers and elders can write study papers for their sessions or their presbytery uh, exegetically demonstrating why they think a doctrine is expressed wrongly in the confession, and it's studied then uh, in a, uh, a church court. And so there are ways then to keep studying our standards to be sure that they're exegetically sound without publicly teaching against them. So, But what we have today is chaos because the Presbyterian Church in America allowed this uh, loose uh, interpretation of the standards on part of each presbytery. It gets, it's very relativistic. Uh, it hasn't made life better for anybody. And I think we're going to sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Mm. Let me ask a follow-up question, Dr. Pope. How did this 
Was this always the position of the PCA, or did this evolve through the through its history? The PCA was probably naively full subscription, although from from day one there would have been those who didn't understand what that meant. But when the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod joined us, they had a did have a, a, a broader view on subscription. In fact, uh, Dr. Barker had written a broader view in contrast to Dr. Smith's writings on uh, our view, full subscription. So that, I think, began the process of increasing the uh, loosening of the standards. And now they call it good faith subscription? Good faith subscription. And that means? That you're going to be honest with your presbytery, and then the presbytery will decide whether you're uh, exception is really a, a serious exception or not. And so presbyteries are differing. So you would have a man that could get into one presbytery mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, and they wouldn't even say it's an exception, and come to another presbytery, and they wouldn't even let him in because of his exception. So in the General Assembly, it's being dealt with through the um, Committee of Review of Presbytery Minutes, and that's creating a lot of a lot of spark, which at the time it was said it would. And this was not going to help anything, so... Well said, and yes, it is. Um, I agree. It has not made things easier. In fact, it's made it far more difficult to really know where people stand on some things and what is actually occurring. Now, question number six is a related question. This comes from um, Jess. I, I think that's what she would like me to call her, as she included it in quotes. So, Jess writes in from uh, North Carolina and asks this question. What advice do you have for those who are new to the Reformed faith? There are so many conflicting views within the Reformed community concerning things like the regulative principle of worship, psalmody, uh, eschatology, the duty of the magistrate, and I'm skipping over the paragraphical stuff here, uh, or not the parenthetical stuff, that that trying to figure out what to believe concerning these issues can be somewhat overwhelming. Throw in Christian liberty and one almost becomes a dizzy. becomes dizzy. (laughs) Great. I need to learn to read. What are some resources you might recommend and or other resources you specifically think should be avoided? Great question. Very good question, Jess, and I do appreciate your uh, perplexity. I I put the question here because you can see how it relates to uh, the previous question. Again, a little background. A Presbyterian practice doctrine that I revel in is that office bearers need to subscribe to all the doctrines of the confession and catechisms, but church members are to make a credible profession of faith and then commit to studying the issues. So you don't have to believe in election or Sabbath practices per se uh, to come into the church if you're willing to study uh, those issues. Most of our churches will even receive people that don't believe in infant baptism as long as that you don't teach against it and you submit to continuing to study it. Now, I want to divide your issues, Jess, if I might. Regular principle of worship is not something that should be up for grabs, and the circumstances elements thing is merely people playing word games. Historically, uh, the difference has always been clear, and the standards, nobody's ever doubted what they teach. And so the circumstance fog is just a way of doing things in worship that are not 
revealed to us in Scripture. So that is a serious issue. The omnil post mill thing, the confession does not take a stand. Uh, and so you're free to work on that through Scripture study. Uh, you'll find ministers that hold to both those positions and other positions. Christian liberty, the confession, again, is very clear. So if people are trying to bind the conscience of something that the Bible does not require or forbid, then they're going beyond uh, both Scripture and the confession. Might I interrupt real quick here? What would be a good example of something that the Church may try to bind the conscience over a member where the Scriptures are not really clear on? I'm, I'm thinking of one. Well, let's just say the use of alcohol. Okay. Uh, the Bible forbids drunkenness. I, I know of some churches that would not allow—to be an elder, you had to uh, sign a statement. You would not use uh, alcohol in moderation. Now, that's condemned by Scripture and is condemned by the chapter on Christian liberty. Hmm. Now, the area of psalm singing, Jess, if you just listen to the previous answer, this is one of those areas where uh, there's three approaches. There are those that think that the standards require exclusive use of psalms. Uh, then, if that's the case, then one doesn't believe that's biblical. One would scruple that and say, I believe all of the regular principle. I simply believe the Bible requires me to sing hymns. So I uh, will take a scruple to that one particular requirement. Or my position is, is that we must sing psalms, but the confession doesn't bind us to the exclusive use of psalms, and the Bible does require me to sing hymns. Important thing there is to respect one another's position. An exclusive psalmist should not say that those who sing hymns don't hold the regular principle, and those who believe we should sing hymns should not accuse them of going beyond Scripture. They have very serious arguments. And so um, try to divide that those issues for you. So areas of, of worship in terms of the regular principle, the standards are clear. Specific things such as what we sing, that is an area for ongoing study. Eschatology, an area for ongoing study. You also mentioned the um, duty of the magistrate. The um, American Presbyterians took a different approach than the uh, original on that. And um, there are some that would think that the original is better. But uh, again, if a denomination has adopted the American version, then that the ministers are required, and they must, I, I, you know, I think that's a scruple if they think government should have more involvement. It's not a serious exception, but um, so those are, those are issues, particularly that one, that's not going to affect you and your sanctification. I hope that helps, Jess. Now, in terms of some resources, G.I. Williams' study books on both the Confession and the Catechism are priceless. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're on our list. If they are, we'll, we'll send one of they're, them they're to you. They're definitely not, but we can— We have a book by Beattie, the seminary publishes, yep. that is uh, on the standards, and it is useful except on creation. Um, and so we wouldn't encourage his position on uh, kind of a broader p- approach to creation— I've got a discipleship book that is a, a study book on the standards and Scripture uh, that I think, not because I wrote it, but simply because the purposes of it and how it's God used it is a very good place for a young Christian to start in terms of studying Scripture and then what the Scripture says about the doctrines that are in 
the standards. I would avoid those books that try to create confusion on circumstances and um, elements of worship, such as the book on worship by uh, Dr. Gore, or, uh, Professor Frame's book on worship, uh, because I don't think there are, um, so we say scholarly at, at the point mm-hmm. of really dealing either with Calvin or with uh, historic Presbyterianism or Scripture. Very good. And um, if we, that BD book that was mentioned, if that's not on the list, I will consult with uh, our librarian to see if we can. Well, add I think that. we just should just sing Jess, send her my book, and I'll make the dif- up the difference. Wonderful. Okay, so we'll take care of that, Jess, for you, and that should help. Um, even further study on this particular now we got a Jesse matter yes correct <laughs> question number four on the list of today by, by the way those who maybe have never listened to this segment before I don't choose these questions so I, I find out minutes before usually what we're going to do so um, there's some that I always hope get asked but sometimes they don't but that's okay this is a great question and really it goes into something. well if you send them to me before the day before I could actually do a little and more that's true still. in, in so, interest um... of full disclosure I was a little slow this time um, because there's so many of them I mean that's it there it, we have a great list of questions we're not going to get to all of them and so there'll be a segment four of course and so keep sending your questions in even if those of you who have already sent one but we're catching up second, but we are so. catching up but Jesse writes in from Arizona and she asked this question, what are some ways to involve toddlers in our keeping the Lord's Day? How do we manage to devote the day to the Lord when our little ones are at the age where they don't really know the significance of the day just yet? Thank you, Jesse. Uh, Jesse's a, a friend of mine. I miss them. They've moved out to Arizona. But it's a very good question. I think they have their firstborn now who's about this age. And I will, again, put in a, uh, an ad. In my book of the Lord's Day, I actually have an entire chapter devoted to making the day a delight for our children. Of course, the most difficult are the toddlers. Some things I recommend, Jesse, uh, keep the family focused on the day. Recognize that as parents, you're going to have less Sabbath for yourself if you really are going to try to help your children from that youngest age develop a love for the Sabbath. So plan the afternoon for them. That would include reading to them first uh, picture Bible story books and then some script Bible story books. We highly recommend the whole series of children's books that Christian Focus Publications produces. All of our homes should have those. Uh, And then we've got good videos now you can use with little ones, although be careful. I I think the VeggieTales stuff like that is uh, a violation of the Third Commandment. But there are still cartoon videos on Pilgrim's Progress and the Narnia Chronicles and things uh, like that. So read to them. uh, Have some videos. um, Take them for walks. Mm. uh, So they've got to get rid of their energy. And so if the weather permits, go for a walk. Uh, But on the walk, talk to them about the Lord. Uh, Start them on the children's catechism, and you can review that on your walks. When we lived in Philadelphia, the city was really loud on Sunday. Uh, That was back in the days of boom boxes. And so we would go sometimes to a picnic, I mean to the park, the picnic, review catechism, go for a walk, and then have a quieter time together. In that way. So uh, there are creative things you can do, but I appreciate your desire and encourage you to let your child grow up loving the Lord's Day. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I, I As I was listening to Dr. Piper's answer, it made me want to have children again. And I say that because I wasn't in the Reformed faith when I my children came along. So when I started hearing about family worship, my children were older, and I felt like I'd lost so much valuable time with them, instructing them with these things, and in a sense wish I could have could rewind the time and, and do and deal with some of these things myself. In the Lord's providence, that's not what happened. Um, but now, on this end of it, I'm able to hopefully help other younger parents in these matters um, do these kinds of things, because it's such, such a great value to, to see your children grow in the faith and to hear these, these wonderful doctrines uh, communicated to them so that they grow as, as wonderful people in Christ Church as adults. So great question, and thank you, uh, Jesse, for writing in. And don't forget to, um, well, you'll get an email from me, and you can choose your book of choice. Question five um, is really short, um, actually refreshingly short. <laughs> I don't have to say much. Uh, David writes in from, um, from the United Kingdom. Uh, this is our fir- actually our first international question being read in the air, if, I ha- if my memory is working correctly. Of course, this is coming from the guy I thought this was 2012 this morning, so You don't who count knows? Canada International? Nah, not well. I know you do. I, I lived in Canada. I never felt like I was that disconnected from the U.S., but this is definitely, definitely international <laughs> without discussion. We've got two today. We've got this, one from the United Kingdom, one from Brazil. Yes, so. one from Brazil coming up in a few minutes. But David writes in and asks simply this, what is First Peter 3, 19 and 20 referring to? Very good, uh, Peter. It's a good question. Let me read 18 through 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which, that means in the Spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the destruction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There has been the historic understanding of this text that I hold to, and we'll come to in just a moment, but the, um, the newer interpretation that's particularly involved in some modern evangelicalism and dispensationalism is that Christ, um, in the interim period uh, of his... Um, death and resurrection, went in his spirit uh, to hell and proclaimed the gospel to uh, those who were in hell who had rejected the preaching of Noah. Now, of course, the problem with that is, uh, in the first place, Christ said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Christ commended his spirit into the hands of the Father. And so, Uh, We have historically understood that his spirit immediately went to the presence of his father, remained there until he came back into his body on Sunday morning. Uh, And and plus, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. It would almost be, well, why would he go preach? No, the historic understanding here is, is that Christ was preaching through Noah by the Spirit. Other places the New Testament says that um, the Spirit of the prophets, and Christ was speaking through the Spirit of the prophets. And so what we have here is that when Noah was preaching, the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Godhead, was speaking through him to the rebels 
who now, or when Peter wrote this, who then were already in hell, who were in hell. They weren't in hell when Christ preached to them through the preaching of Noah. And remember, uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Peter also uh, tells us that. So Noah's the preacher of righteousness. He preached by the Spirit of Christ. The generation to which he spoke was destroyed in the flood. And as Peter's writing this, they then were in hell as they are today. Uh, just a quick follow-up question for my own sanity. It's interesting, this question. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, oh, and, no. you, and you knew I was going to ask this question. You had to well, know I, I was going to ask this today. question. We got too many other things to do. Well, it, just quickly, um, it, clear, the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. And, and some Reformed churches quote the Apostles' Creed as part of their confession of faith during worship. What is it referring to? I've heard all kinds of explanations. Well, there's, there's two basic interpretations. There's Calvin's, and there's the one that's actually part of the Westminster uh, writers. Uh, one is that his simply his body was in Hades, which is means the grave. So it can mean the grave or, or, or eternal punishment. But his body, not the spirit. Right. His okay. body was in Hades. All right. Understood. Uh, others is that on the cross he suffered the reality of hell, and it's added there to uh, emphasize the fact that he not only uh, died. Uh, and was buried, but he actually paid a penal satisfaction for sin in his death. Great. Okay. So that'll help dovetail a little bit of that passage there. I think that's one of the texts they use, in fact. Question number eight comes in from uh, Jason. This is our second international que- uh, question, if, <laughs> if you consider Canada international. They do. Um, they do, I guess. <laughs> Fine. Um, it is technically. I, I'm not going to argue over it. Besides, you have to have a passport lose, now to get in. I would lose anyway. It doesn't matter. I've learned after two years being here that I'm, I don't win too many arguments on these the, the nature. Now, golf is a different subject, but anyway. But Jason writes in from Ontario, Canada. Uh, where I was uh, privileged actually to live for a a season when I was a little boy, uh, way up there in Durham, so not that far from Windsor, actually, I believe, if I have my map right. But anyway, doesn't matter. But Jason writes in this question, really great question. He says, I've been struggling with the thought of attending seminary because of the climate of the Christian mindset on academics. I see our need for godly men of the church to mentor and disciple men on their way to the ministry. On the other hand, I see the need for deep, extensive learning that seminary provides, but at the same time, I've heard it can leave men zapped of their desire to shepherd the church. Obviously, Dr. Piper is an advocate of seminary, being the president of the seminary, but I was wondering if he could give an exegetical defense for the need of seminary. Thank you and every blessing. Thank you, Jason. A good question, and I cannot answer it in great detail, but if you will get the conference tape from 2011, I have an address on the uh, that goes on all the exegetical basis and the historical basis of seminary. And so that's free. You can go to Sermon Audio or our website and uh, get that address. Sermon Audio, the website, and it should be, if it's not, I will make sure it is, but it should be on the mobile app as well. Um, so multiple places to get it. But yeah. yes, I was actually present for this uh, this uh, I don't want to call it a sermon, but, but a lecture. Yeah. Um, but let on, me uh, just give you a quick over, pl- overview, plus kind of disabuse you of some of your uh, notions. The um, School of the Prophets, I think, is the exegetical foundation for having a school where men would come uh, with their families if they were married and study for a period of time under masters like Elijah and Elisha and others. And the whole prophetic office 
developed then. So these, some of these men would have special gifts of the Spirit in terms of receiving revelation, but not all of them. They would be the preachers and the worship uh, leaders, so to speak, in, um, in Israel. So as under Samuel, and then in the monarchy, the office of prophecy prophet developed, we had the schools. Uh, the apostle Paul spent three years being prepared by Christ. Throughout our history, the church, once we were no longer were a Greek-speaking people, understood the need uh, for men to come aside and to learn uh, the, the languages of the Bible, uh, Greek and Hebrew. Our confession says that uh, all religious controversy, all theological issues should be settled by the original languages, and all sermon preparation needs to come from the original uh, languages. And uh, there's an excellent piece by Dabney in his discussions on the need of seminary training. Mm. Um, Cunningham, in his volume of Theological Discussions, has an excellent chapter on why we need seminaries. And Warfield, the, um, the spiritual life of the theological students, something like that. Um, I would say at Greenville Seminary, it would be the exception of a man that left here who had been zapped of his desire for pastoral ministry. I think our guys, we try to keep a balance between mentoring, classroom, p promoting piety, high view of pastoring and preaching. And so I don't think they're zapped uh, when they need here. And if a man is zapped, at that point, responsibility falls on his shoulders, not the seminary. If he decides right. to neglect his soul or his family while in seminary. Those are decisions he's made wrongly. We militate against that. We encourage the men a balanced life. We now have a course that begins. We have two foundational courses. One's Introduction to Reformed Theology. The other one is Reformed Spirituality. Taking first semester, all students take that course, both those courses. And that helps also establish some of the practices that are important in seminary. So I can't do more with this now, Jason. I will follow up if you want to, but I would encourage you to get that um, lecture and listen to that. And yeah, what I would suggest is, is get the lecture, listen to it, and if you have further questions regarding the lecture, write in again. Um, or write me. Sketch, or you can write Dr. Piper directly um, as well. So um, I, I hope that helps anyway. Question number nine. Well, it's question number nine on my list. It's not question number nine on the list of the day. Question number nine on my list comes from um, Abby, who writes in from Sanford, Florida. And two I'm going to, and I'm really, I'm going to read. It looks like two questions. I'm just going to read it as it's as stated here, and, and, and then trust Dr. Piper will dissect it correctly. Um, I think he is already on to it anyway. But here's the question: How should we answer those who claim that keeping the Sabbath is legalism, similar to that of the Galatians? How are we to biblically draw the line between submission to the government and necessary disobedience to obey God? Where in Scripture should we look? Good questions, Abigail. The first question with respect to the Sabbath, I'll tell a little story of one of the Puritans. I think it was, it was one of the Rogers, John Rogers or Richard Rogers, was out riding on his horse. And the, uh, the nobleman of the area who was opposed to the Puritan pastoral agenda rode up beside him, was trying to engage him in some controversy, which Rogers resisted. And finally, in exasperation, the Lord said, why is it you Puritans are so precise? 
and Roger's answer because we serve a precise God. We must distinguish, Abby, between precision and legalism. Legalism is two things. Legalism is trying to get acceptance with God on the basis of my works. That's obviously heresy. Or adding laws to Scripture, such as we discussed earlier in the broadcast about not using alcohol in moderation or whatever. That's legalism. Precision is not legalism. The Lord said, you be holy as I am holy. That is a very high, precise standard. And so the Bible is very clear about the Lord's Day, along with idolatry. It's the Sabbath was the primary thing that God condemned and put Judah into exile for. Look in a number of chapters in Ezekiel uh, around 18, 19, 20. And so um, we should love the Lord's Day. And we should seek to please God in it. Now, it should be an attitude with respect to the Lord's Day, mm-hmm. not what I don't do, but why, what am I freed to do? And so there can be a wrong kind of attitude. And so I am freed for corporate worship morning and evening. I am freed to have more time to read, to pray, to be uh, having discussions with my children, extended family worship. Uh, I'm freed to take a nap. I'm free to uh, visit shut-ins or do evangelism. I have a lot of things I can do, particularly those that have other responsibilities. Um, it's a, so the Puritans called it the marketplace of the soul. It was a day for spiritual recreation. Now, the second question, where you ask about the uh, line of submission between government and necessary disobedience, we, of course, would begin with 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul, building on Genesis chapter 9, teaches that government is a, uh, instituted by God, and even pagan government uh, is a minister of God, and we are to submit to that government, and we're to pay taxes to that government. Just, just a note of clarification. You, you mean Romans 13. I think you said 1 Corinthians, yes. and I don't want to confuse, me. I don't want to confuse yeah. the no, listeners. I, I wrote down 1 Corinthians. Romans 13. Christ then lays the principle in Matthew twenty two fifteen and following that the, the believer is to give to the government that which belongs to the government and to God that which belongs to God. So hmm. if the government begins to usurp the prerogatives of God, then we must uh, disobey. As Peter says in Acts 4.19, um, that uh, we must obey God and not men. In other words, we must preach the gospel. So th- those are the general principles. Now, Two different categories. There are things the government allows that are sinful. Of course, the most obvious is abortion and now um, same-sex marriage. Uh, And we would not, of course, do those things, but we're not required to do those things at this point. Now, if, in fact, a Christian minister was told that he could not preach against either one of those things, he then would have to say with Peter, I must obey God and not men. But there are things, for example, if, if we lived in China, uh, where they require abortion after one child, then we would have to disobey the government and not abort children if we, uh, if we conceived children. So if the government requires sin, we have to dis- disobey. 
If the government allows sin, then we would continue to teach and preach against it, but there is no cause there for civil disobedience. I hope that helps. Yeah, great answer, and very good question, uh, especially, as Dr. Pipe has uh, mentioned, uh, the climate we live in uh, seems, at least, unless God intervenes, uh, we're heading in this direction in some of these areas, um, sad to say, and it's uh, grievous even to consider what what is actually occurring, uh, especially on the two issues that have been already mentioned. Question, um, well, the next question, it comes in from uh, this one I knew was coming. <laughs> I was told, we're doing this question no matter what. So uh, I knew this one was coming uh, anyway, um, sort of contradicts my original statement that I'd never know what's coming. But um, anyway, Virginia writes in from Brazil. Now, I know that's international. If Canada, this is definitely an international question, but Virginia writes in and she asks uh, the following question. My question is about church discipline. What is your opinion about a church member that is living out of the church in a sinful life for years without church discipline? This church council or elders and pastors is under discipline also as they know about this church member's life. What can we do as a church against this problem? Thank you so much for your help. Okay, thank you, Virginia. Now, the, the second thing begins with this really is a further question. Is this church council under a discipline also since they know about this church member's life? Let's put it – we've got two problems here. In the first place, uh, a professing member or a baptized but non-communicant member of the church who is an adult living in sin separate from the church should be disciplined by the church and – it's a loving thing to excommunicate that person, uh, that Christ might use that to restore them. And so they should be under church discipline. Now, I think the real crux of your question is, is what about the sessions that don't discipline people uh, as they are sinning? Well, those sessions are sinning. And... Not only are they sinning, they're depriving the people of God of means that Christ, the head of the church, has appointed for the restoration and repentance of people. Church discipline is not something mean. We don't think it's mean if we go to the doctor and he says, you know, you've got cancer in your leg. I need to amputate your leg. If I amputate your leg, uh, you will not die of cancer. Uh, As much as we wouldn't like to do that, we would say, okay, amputate the leg. Church discipline is a merciful and gracious act, both for the person who is in sin, but also for the congregation. So the church council that refuses to do church discipline is both depriving the sinner and the congregation of God's means of grace, and they are sinning. What can you do then about that? Well, you go to your elders, your husband, and you go to your elders, and you ask them, uh, please, to... Um, submit to Christ and to their confession of faith uh, in um, exercising church discipline. Now, do we leave a congregation that is not exercising church discipline? I think it depends on the level of the issue. Mm -hmm. On minor, say a person quits coming to church uh, and the elders don't exercise discipline, Uh, that's not, I believe, something that we're going to leave a church over. But if the church or the presbytery is allowing people to live in adultery or homosexuality, they know it and they're doing nothing about it, that becomes a much more serious issue 
where after bearing witness um, through the capacity you have as a private church member, or if your husband is an office bearer to the levels he can go, you also can appeal to Presbytery if the local session isn't doing it, and I would encourage that before you leave a church, But if, and all the way to the Senate or General Assembly. But if nothing's done, then at that point, I think we have to, uh, have to separate, if it's a serious, gross public sin. Yep. Great answer. And just a follow-up real quick. Um, what is the goal of discipline in the church? Well, it's restoration. It is uh, the honor of Christ's name, and it's to protect the body of Christ from the corruption. If it's allowed in one person, other young people will say, well, they can do it. Why can't I do it? Right. Now, I asked that question for a reason. Obviously, I knew the answer, and certainly Dr. Piper did. Um, just to, to, to head off what some object in this area, they object to in this area, that uh, bunch of totalitarian lunatics drunk with authority and power are just wielding it unnecessarily, and they're being mean-spirited. I can assure you that any elders that, that understand their office, this is the last thing they ever want to do. But they need to do for the reasons Dr. Piper just mentioned. So it's this This is not something we rush to do or desire to do, as it were, just because we can. And it's not mean-spirited. It's loving. It's an act of love um, without question. And if an elder doesn't have that mindset, I think, in their heart as they deal with a member in these ways, then they ought to probably consider whether they should be an elder, uh, bottom line. So I ask that question for that reason. We're not being mean-spirited. Uh, that has no basis for true church discipline at all. We're actually very good on time all right, today. Let's keep going so we then. can go to the question that was we weren't sure we were going to get to, but we are going to get to it. Nathan writes in from where does Nathan write in from? From Indiana. Actually Indianapolis, you know, the home of the Indy five hundred anyway. But Nathan writes, it's a long question, so try to follow with me and uh also, just, again, uh, programming note, I do post all the questions on the ConfessingOurHope.com website that were used in their totality. So as you're listening to the broadcast and you didn't quite get the question as I'm reading it, you can follow it right there on the website additionally um, as you're listening. So Nathan writes in, How can a believer gain a greater conviction of sin over the sin or sins that are necessarily his or her darling sins? By darling sins, I mean sins that are peculiar to the believer that he or she feels most tempted to. For instance, a believer may, may fight tooth and nail every day against greed or lust or another sin that is peculiar to them, praying against them, watching for the rising of temptations to those sins in their daily life, and feeling greatly convicted how wicked those sins are. At the same time, they may recognize they do actually struggle with pride, anger, selfishness, which are sinful, but they don't feel as deeply convicted of the heinous, heinousness of those sins as they do about their quote-unquote darling sins. The believer doesn't want to focus solely on praying against one specific sin while other sins are just hanging on, or to just go along acting if sins like pride, anger, are somehow are somehow not as bad. What are some practical ways a believer can strive for greater conviction over specific sins they don't feel as strongly convicted of in their conscience about? Nathan, thank you for the question. Let me uh, point out as background, Larger Catechism 150 and 151, the Westminster Larger Catechism 150 and 151. 150 are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves 
and in the sight of God. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. We won't read 151, but it then goes and shows us the aggravations of sin uh, that make some sins uh, more serious. But, of course, all sins are soul-destroying, undealt with, and not covered by the blood of Christ. I think you're right. We all will have our darling or besetting sins that we must strive against manfully, but we need to be aware of all sin in our life. And particularly when one thinks that there's an area that's not as bad, that's actually where you need to be that much more careful. Mm -hmm. What I recommend is regular periods of self-examination using the Catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments. Maybe do that on Sunday morning before worship, surely before you come to the Lord's table, uh, and that uh, and confess your sins in light of the exposition, or do one a day uh, in your devotions, or one a week, or whatever. The larger catechism can be pretty long, so you might periodically do all of it, or do all in the shorter, and go the long, and do a commandment uh, a week, or something like that. But have some pattern of self-examination that will remind you of your sins, repent of your sins, ask God to give you a greater hatred for all sin, not just those that bother you more, and repent of your repentance. None of us repent as we ought to, and so we ask God to forgive our repentance, and that it's too accepted for Christ's sake. So I hope that those uh, practical suggestions will help you, Nathan. Thank you for your sensitive spirit. Just a follow-up question with you, Dr. Piper. He mentions here, what are some practical ways a believer can strive for greater conviction? Is that something we can strive for? Well, that's or? why I recommend, yes. By exposing yourself to the catechism's exposition, then your heart's going to be exposed, and you should grow in conviction of sin. Okay. Of course, all of this is precipitated on the fact that the Spirit of God is the one that convicts us. It, it, right. Self-imposed conviction is not necessarily the issue. Um, it would, in my mind, prompt some follow-up, but because of time, we don't really have a chance to talk about like dire morbidity, um, those kinds of elements that some people are trapped in over these matters. But um, anyway, we we'll, won't go too far afield in that. Uh, we've reached, Dr. Piper, we've reached the end of what you had given me. Well, um, no, I said we could do the uh, number 13. Okay, let's do 13. Great. And we do have about 10 minutes, so... Well, then we can also go to uh, – I guess it's 14. Okay. Well, here's question Here's question 13. Again, it's a rather lengthy. Well, no, okay. Then, again, remember our numbers messed up. The very brief question about – it's called 13. Okay. The, the small one from Drew. Yeah, that's, that's called 13. About. Okay. We're going to do the one from Drew from Clearwater, Florida. Um, he writes in and says, I've heard you before express disagreement with the practice of observing the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Would you please explain why you believe this practice to be problematic? Thank you, Drew. Um, perhaps that's how you heard me express myself. Uh, problematic is probably better than disagreement. And let me back up. I don't think the Bible requires weekly communion. 
Frequent communion, I believe, is required by Bible and recommended in the Westminster Directory of Worship. Mine has always been a pastoral concern. A weekly communion in a mature congregation, uh, I think, is a very good thing. Mm. Uh, because people are not worried about the length of the service. You're not going to give short shrift to either the preaching or other parts of worship. Most congregations are not ready even for an hour and 15-minute service. They've got to be brought along to love worship, to love preaching. And so to have maybe twice a month, once in the morning, once in the evening is a way to to do that. Uh, but other congregations, now I've had the privilege for the last few months of being an interim supply at a congregation outside of Atlanta, and if you live in the Douglasville, uh, Georgia area, I highly recommend the Grace Presbyterian Church. They observe weekly communion, but they have a rich worship service, and they don't put time constraints uh, unnecessarily on the preaching of the Word. So it works well there, and I have greatly enjoyed, and I just go twice a month right now, but I have greatly enjoyed that regular practice of communion. If it is done in that way, I encourage one Sunday morning a month and then rest the time in the Sunday evening where um, I think you've got a bit more leisure in the lives of the people uh, to be able to have uh, uh, that sacramental service. Hmm. Good answer, and I appreciate the pastoral nature of the answer as well. Um, one I hadn't actually considered. I'm more of a proponent of weekly communion, um, but given the answer and the question of the maturity of the congregation, that's an interesting um, angle, interesting uh, position, and, and something to seriously consider, and elders would have to certainly weigh that factor in. We're pretty much out of time. I think maybe we'll just table the last one. Well, don't we have about seven minutes? About. Well, let's do it. Okay, then that would be the lengthy question. From Mr. Ketchum, or yeah, you, yes, you forgot just to say the first name. Yeah. Anyway, now that I've said it, anyway, Sam writes in from Taylor, South Carolina. Imagine that. Um, here's his question, rather lengthy. Again, just try to follow best you can. Below is my question. I'm not going to read, read that, that part. part. He says, Doctor Piper, when a covenant child leaves the home as an adult and then clearly demonstrates to no longer be a Christian. What are some guidelines you would give to the believing parents and siblings of this covenant child so that they can best call this person to repentance without being soft on sin? In other words, how do these parents and siblings have a relationship with the unbelieving family member if their sin is obvious and affecting everyone else in the family? Is there ever a case when the family gives an ultimatum to the unbelieving family member along the lines of, quote, repent or we will not help you, unquote? For example... A covenant child grows up, gets married, three years later commits adultery and leaves the spouse. Refuses to repent, three years later the adulterous family member has no money, no job, no work, and calls on the family for help, but still refuses to deal with their sin. What, what do the family members do? Would they be enabling the unrepentant family member if they helped him or her? You know, Sam, it's a, a good question. I know that in your family dealing with it, there's another family actually here in the Greenville area having to deal with it as well. Um, first place, again, we get back to the matter of church discipline, because it would make a difference what the church has done. If the church has, ex has excommunicated the person, uh, 
the family, we don't practice shunning. So excommunication does not break off family relationships. And so you don't cut off contact uh, with that uh, adult child or sibling. And I don't think that excommunication, the rest of the church should not have even eating social activities with the person, but the family, let's just say that a, a man's wife's excommunicated. She doesn't cease to be his wife. He doesn't withhold conjugal uh, privileges uh, from her and such as that. And so the, the, the family as an institution is prior to the church, and the family's institution is not premised upon only conversion. All people are to be married. Uh, they're to have children. Uh, and those are the primary relationships um, that God has established under having a relationship with him. So if the church has not done its duty, it puts a greater problem or responsibility on the back of the family. Now, as I understand the situation, the family cannot help the person if they continue in sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're committing adultery and they're broke, and they want help, but they're not willing to break off their sinful practices of adultery or homosexuality, then there has to be the ultimatum. As long as you are living in the practice of sin, uh, we can't help you. But do they have to convert for us to help them? And I would say no. But if an adult child comes home, having messed up their life like that, repentance is not the sign are the requisite, prerequisite. But if they come home, it must be you will live here under our rules. You will attend both services on the Lord's Day. You will not come in uh, to this house after a certain time. You will not come to this house intoxicated. You will not bring any um, of your uh, lovers or friends to this house. You will do none of those activities here. And unfortunately, I know families that let the adult children come home and don't lay down those rules. I think that then is enabling them in sin. Mm. So um, if they're willing to come home and live under the family rules, even though they're not repentant, we can't produce repentance, but we can produce the uh, environment that God will use if he's willing to do so to grant repentance. So um, home, if they're not practicing the sin, and they're willing to live by the rules. That's that's where I am on it. Great answer. Using those external means to help to, that God may use to produce true repentance in the life of the wayward person. I love how that was expressed in that answer. Now we are definitely out of time. I'm not wrong this time. We're actually at about 58, almost 59 minutes. So got through a lot um, and a lot of great questions. And I would encourage the listeners to continue to send in questions. And tell your friends. Um, Next month, uh, the only we, we've put off three questions. The one I still have to read the book by Inglesma, and so I don't know when I'll get to that with my workload. But we will deal next month with the two questions that had to do with the republication of the Covenant of Works and the Mosaic Law. Those will be the first two questions we deal with next month. And there's only three questions left on the table, so please get some questions in for us. Absolutely, and I will continue to harangue you on social media 
<laughs> that is Facebook and Twitter and wherever else I can get my stick my claws into uh, to do that. And again, follow the website, confessingourhope.com. There you can get all past broadcasts, subscribe to the, the podcast feed, find out information about the mobile app, find out what's coming up on the program and uh, what dates those will be and all of the information, resources that come out of broadcasts, all on the website there for your uh, use and edification. So please be also, sure to... Also, follow us on Facebook. Yes, follow us. And on like us. As I understand it, the whole idea of liking is when people go to a search engine, um, that causes us to come up more quickly the more likes that we have. That's so correct. go on Facebook, like us a lot. But you can follow my major uh, conference-type ministry is there, various seminary activities, prayer requests, and so follow us. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm getting so modern, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's coming from a man who told me when I first came to the seminary he would never be on Twitter. So just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm winning a little bit of this war of the social media. I think I said never. Thing. Okay, maybe not never, probably not. But anyway, point is it wasn't likely anyway. But yes, you know, you all heard that Facebook is the new internet, right? Everybody's heard that by now. I, it's almost like if you're not on Facebook, you're, you're a nobody when it comes to the internet. I know there are people out there that don't like Facebook. That's fine. Don't use it. I mean, this is not binding thing, but it is a good resource, frankly. Um, people come across articles, information that is helpful to our Christian lives, various resources. Uh, you're going to learn about it there. Uh, otherwise, you're just not going to know about it. That's just the reality just know of it. About us is all. And, and if you don't care about that <laughs> stuff, then fine. Don't join Facebook. You don't have to play the games and watch every video that your friends post on there. But use it for resource material, and we are there. It's just simply search for Greenville Seminary. It'll, it'll pop right up, and um, we have a number, hundreds of people that like quote unquote us um, at this time, and hopefully more in the future. So what is coming up on the program, I really don't know. I don't have my calendar in front of me, so I can't tell you. But you can go to the website, and you'll find out there what is coming up, and probably know more than I do at this point what, in fact, is happening. So use the website to your advantage. And as always, uh, we do thank you for listening to this particular broadcast, this segment, these, these things that we're doing. This is for your help. It's a resource. Take advantage of it right in. It's free. You can write in. It doesn't cost you anything except a few minutes. And then you get a book. And you might win, get, I don't want to say win. I don't like that way of doing it. But you may receive from us a book if we read your question on the air. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition, Faith and Practice segment number three of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. God bless.